Hey, this is BTBT, and we are at Three's Brewing at 333 Douglas Street, Brooklyn, New York, 11217, a beautiful venue in Brooklyn. Shout out to Three's Brewing for allowing us to do the show here today. Perry, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, you know, enjoying the nice weather and uh, hopefully another Penguins win. <laughs> right, right. And I'm very excited about today's guest. He's a beer, spirits, food, and travel journalist. You may have seen his work in publications such as Beer Advocate, Draft, Men's Journal, New York Magazine, New York Times, and Imbibe, to name a few. He's been featured as a beer expert on CNBC, Fox Business, and NPR's Marketplace. He's appeared on numerous podcasts such as Beer Friends Happy Hour, Burnt Toast, Good Beer Hunting, Wine Enthusiasts, Steal This Beer, and Beer Sessions Radio. But we welcome him to the Beer Today, Beer Tomorrow podcast for the very, very first time. Sir, please introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Joshua M. Bernstein. You can call me Josh, unless you're signing checks. That's Joshua all the time. <laughs> Josh, welcome to the show. You are obviously also an accomplished author. You've uh, written Brood Awakening, The Complete Beer Course, Complete IPA, and now your latest book, Homebrew World, was just released on April 17th, so congratulations on that. Oh my God, it feels like I never stop writing. Seriously. <laughs> I mean... I think I got my first book deal back in 2009, and now it's like 2018, so that's like nine years of nonstop writing books, wow. promoting books, and talking about books. But it's okay, though. There are worse ways and worse things to be in life. Well, I hope you enjoy today, because you're going to be talking about and promoting your book in part. <laughs> Great. Um, so let's just jump right into it. So what was your motivation and inspiration behind this new book? Yeah, you know, this is my fourth book, but I really wanted it to be my third book. And so the idea behind that is just this... I've been leading these things called homebrew tours for a number of years in New York City. And they kind of started off as a lark, whereas this is maybe back in like uh, 09, and New York City Beer Week promoters asked me to put together a couple events. So the first event I thought of was something near and dear to my heart, which was going to scary dive bars. Now, I've always loved a really great dive bar in my life. And I think sure. oftentimes people think of dive bars as the terrifying places that you go to. They're going to get knifed if you walk in there. But I think I always hypothesize that's far scarier to go to like these frat bars, like the douchey bro bars, late night and a Friday night when like everybody just wants to fight or fuck or whatever in between. Yeah. You go to a true dive bar, it's all about camaraderie, it's about welcoming you together. So we went to all these dive bars in Brooklyn, went to Imperial Biker Bar, like the old biker gang bar, went to stop in one of the old speakeasies on Nostrand Avenue, and I was like, we had a blast. And so that was a one-off. And then when the other one was a, a homebrew tour, we took folks to different homebrewers' homes, we drank their beer, met them all. It was both the best idea and the worst idea because I planned this entire day. It was eight hours, multiple trains going from Bay Ridge all the way out to Williamsburg, including like a stop for a barbecue. By the end, everybody was like, oh my God, are we done? I'm like, just one more stop. The also thing people said to me at the end was, when's the next one? And really, I thought about this. I'm a writer and you don't really spend your days like thinking about how you can go on tours through this stuff. I was all about hustling for the next story, but somehow in some way... You know, this is around 9, 10, when a lot of homebrewers really started percolating in New York City. And so um, we started doing more and more and more and more. Then we had this great track record where everybody that started opening up breweries was on the tour, be it Single Cut, Transmitter, Finback. You know, you name it, they were on the homebrew tour at one time or the other. Yeah. And so I was thinking about books to do. I pitched my editor on maybe three or four different uh, book ideas. One book was about the rise of farmhouse beer in America, which I still think is something in there like, nope, too niche. And I'm like, well, what about the homebrew thing? And they're like, eh. I'm like, well, let's just do a darn book about IPAs. And they're like, well, that's a great idea. Like, <laughs> IPAs sound like a marvelous thing. I was like, whatever, I'll do the IPA book. And, you know, you do books for the best of your hope and heart. But I really love the idea of the homebrew tour. Because I think what people liked about it 
was this sense of going to people's homes, seeing them, breaking down these barriers that exist in New York City and actually everywhere. You know, you look at this bar right now. People are talking to their friends. They're not going to walk up and talk to a stranger. But if you're in a home bird tour, you're in somebody's kitchen around strangers all there for the same thing. Here, people are there to see friends, to get laid, do whatever tonight. They're not all there to meet like-minded beer lovers, even though great beer is on tap. Right. So I really thought about the idea of like, how can we spin this out around the world? And so I really want to showcase that it's not just guys, girls in America, beards, basements, backyard propane burners and whatnot that's happening in other countries, other nations, where people that are not like cut from the same cloth or what people think are cut from the same cloth. Yeah. So, you know, and that's the easy thing. The hard thing is finding all these people. And so, you know, so I basically canvas every single brewer person I knew around the globe. You know, you make some connections after doing this for 15 years. So I yeah. got like A, B, C, D, and then it's reaching out to people. Then it's trying to figure out they're interested. Then trying to set up, uh, you know, trying to set up interviews in Japan and Thailand and like Patagonia. So it was this giant logistical struggle and also linguistic struggle too. Oh, yeah. Because language is a barrier as well. But in the end, I think we got a really good, you know, a really good collection of brewers to really show what's happening around the world. Awesome. So, you know, I'm sure you're proud of each of your books, but given the connection to how you kind of got started in the scene, is is this one just a little bit more special? Yeah, I think it's a lot more personal too because, you know, the first book I did was something, they originally wanted me to do a book on stouts. And I was like, whatever, just give me any book deal possible. And you're just like, that's going to be great. Yeah. But in the end, we turned it into Brood Awakening, which I really thought was a pretty vital book. Talking about the moment of why this stuff's happening right now. How it's echoing out. More narratively driven. And then Complete Beer Course was sort of, you know, we had no idea how much of a beast that would be. I mean, that's been sold like 100,000 copies almost. Been translated in Chinese, South Korean, and so on. And it's just wow. taking it over. And I think when you do that, open stores. But this is a book that... You know, I think for me it was really personal. That is something that you start on your own, that nobody else in this time had done something of this level. And so, you know, I grew up in the 90s in Dayton, Ohio, doing indie rock stuff, DIY, making zines, stealing copies from Kinko's, putting on punk rock shows everywhere. So that stuff, like the Homebird Tours, is really just a larger scale thing of this. It's not like it's, um, you know, something we w- workshopped in a media lab or workshopped somewhere. Yeah. It just felt like something that was really fun to do. And because we treat everybody really well, I mean, we don't really publicize, but every brewer got, you know, gift certificates to cover their ingredients. So it's not like a lot of these events and festivals where people to brew for the honor of brewing and exposure. As we always say, the only thing you get from exposure is death. You know, you don't actually (laughs) get anything out of it. Right. So we covered everybody's ingredients or costs. And we created a lot of great friends today, too, out of that. And I think... um, yeah, you know, is it going to sell? Is it not going to sell? I don't know. I mean, it's, there's books, the beer books that do well these days are books that tell you how to be a better something, be a better brewer, a better drinker, a better whatever. And that's just the market. That's the way it's shaking out. So you hope. I mean, but we really focus on the narratives of people. I think you're going to learn interesting stuff that's going to show you that you can overcome all boundaries that, oh, you got a small apartment. Try brewing in a country where brewing's illegal and you've got to basically bootleg hops to brew anything at all. I mean, that's challenging. Bringing a 700-square-foot studio apartment, that's nothing when you got a hop shop and like you have mail order and Amazon deliver you whatever you dream yeah. of. One-button one machines yeah. now, right? Yeah. I mean, or one-button machines. I mean, that stuff didn't exist. I mean, pay 2,000 bucks or bucks, push a button, and you got beer. Yeah. And like in three hours, flat. I mean, I don't know. People ask why people still brew in this day and age when every beer is available on the store shelf. And the way I think about it, 
you know, you can buy everything you can dream of. You know, 30, 40 years ago, people brewed to create what they could not drink, what they could not consume. They brewed, you know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was a revolutionary idea. You know, um, Anchor Foghorn, all that stuff all together. These were all sort of just beers that didn't exist. We look at these beers now and we're like, oh, oh, um, it's not a double dry hop with lactose in there, which you can go down the road and get that. But I think um, why people brew is community, creativity, and this whole tinker idea. Yeah. yeah, you can buy an Apple, you can buy any MacBook, and people still make play on robotics, they build things, technology still excites people. So I think it's really about the community, about creativity, and putting your own stamp on things. And I still think a lot of uh, the next generation of home brewers are brewing beer in their homes right now. I mean, I think it's interesting because, you know, it's as much of an art as a science, right? Like, to do it really well, you need to have a nice science background of what's actually going on. But, again, it is limitless. It's just like dining. Like, you can do anything with the ingredients. You can so. do anything you want. And I think the business plans are broader than ever right now, too. I mean, before, maybe in the 90s, 80s, you had to be everything to everybody. That you had to have your brown beer, your, your blonde beer, your red beer. You had to like spin the color wheel right. and brew whatever popped up right there. But uh, nowadays, you can have a uh, you know a wild focus brewery make a living on there, too. You can be Suarez, and you can focus on Pilsners and still make a name for yourself. Oh, yeah. You can be a Jolly Pumpkin and focus on like oak-fermented sour beers. And I mean... You don't have to have, you don't have to be everything to everybody. I think nowadays you can just create something that's unique to you. Absolutely. And you'll find, you hopefully you'll find an audience. If you don't, you know, it's, you know, it's a business and some fail, some succeed. Yeah. But you know, along those lines, I, I find it interesting just going back to the, to the homebrew tours, you know, our, our, our homie, Jason Saylor, who you know very well, yeah. we, we were talking about it and he, he actually referred to you as, as somewhat of a kingmaker because so many of those. You know, home, but some of those guys, like you just mentioned, went on to create breweries in New York and be so pivotal to the New York craft beer scene. So can you tell us a little bit about that and, and kind of your role in, in a way, really helping grow the New York craft beer scene? Yeah, I mean, like, A, I'm honored that happens. And B, I never think of myself like that. I'm just a dude that kind of makes things happen. And I think that's what it is. I think if you're in New York City, you're here to make things happen. So we did the homebrew tours, and that really got people together. And then I got people, like, that shined a light on there. We got some media attention for the tours. Then beyond that, we threw a lot of really big events together. We threw stuff like the Homebrew Jamboree at Jimmy's, where we took over all of Jimmy's from 43, 120 people, 18 brewers, ate brunch food, and you got drunk in the basement during beer week. And it was great. And people made friends there. They met folks. And we just kept inviting all these brewers to all these events. And, you know, it creates community. The more you see these people, the more you want to be around them. I mean, a number of the brewers that have started up, or the brewery started up, some of their investments and funding came directly from attendees on the homebrew tour, which I think is wild. The fact that people that went to the kitchen, Amazing. they believed in them so deeply that that. So, yeah, definitely there's a number of breweries that could not have existed. It would have been a lot harder for them to exist, period, if they had to go out there. I mean, when you're in their home, you see their passion, you see their story, you try their beer. It's not a, it's not a focus group. It's not like, okay, guys, here's my... Here's my list of things. You're going to get 5% return annualized. It's just something I think reverberated. And we saw all together jointly that beer was happening in New York City on a very small scale. And that we want to be part of this wave together. I think all of us, you know, we started doing the homebrew tours back in uh, 09. New York City's beer scene, think about it. There's Chelsea Craft Brewing, now dead. Six Point, you couldn't even visit. There was, uh, you know, Brooklyn Brewery. And really, that was about it. That's it. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, you know, 508 opened up for a little bit, single cut in 2012, other half 14, so there's nothing there. And so we all decided to get together and make a scene happen out of thin air. 
So this is all, and we are still, you know, all the dudes from KCBC, Jason Strongrope. I remember the guys from Transmitter came to one of my talks about, I think, Brood Awakening or Complete Beer Course in the Backyard of Browery Lane. And they're like, oh, we make beer. And I'm like, great. And then Finback, they reached out to me, Kevin and Basil, we're at another homebrewer's home, and they're drinking beer. They're like, we're going to start a brewery. I'm like, sure you are. <laughs> and then, so we all just met each other in a way. And, you know, you really want to champion these people all together. And I think, you know, New York City, after a while, people wanted to come to New York City and see these things. And as my books came out and we all got a little bit more, you know, notice about who we were, we were really able to shine a light on these other people. Yeah. We wanted to bring everybody up with us. And it wasn't just that. I don't think anybody in New York City's beer scene right now is just all about all for themselves. In that sense, that we're all kind of, we understand we have a long way to go, that we're just small potatoes compared to a lot of other cities in the country as far as our density, but we can offer a sort of walkability, friendliness, um, uniqueness, and just, yeah. you know. I mean, you have a world-class city that's finally growing the scene that matches that city. Yeah. Well, I always say New York doesn't stay far behind for long in anything. Yeah. I mean, it be a, any kind of food, any kind of curry, it's just we catch up. It's just our competitive nature. You don't come to New York City to be second best at anything. No. 100%. And and that's the interesting thing, whether it's by circumstance or just the scene, uh, we talk about this often on the show. It's just amazing to see the camaraderie on the beer scene. I mean, people really support one another. It's it's not, you know, it's people understand that, you know, together everyone can grow. That's really a great thing about the craft beer scene. Like you said, craft beer is community. Yeah, it is. And I think, as I said before in the beginning, it's really hard to find that community for yourself in New York City. It's just we're all busy as hell. But I got other things. I got nine hustles, kids, apartment drama, whatever. Yeah. And I mean... You know, beer brings you together bigger than that. I mean, it's just this commonality that allows you to find something with all these other New Yorkers. I mean, it's not, you know, I think that's what, it's a scene, you, you, you just find all these circles and scenes within other scenes in the city, and beer ha- tends to be a very big one right now. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, even though I've just moved here recently, nightlife, in whatever fashion, has always been a core part of the city, right? And mm-hmm. so that it's now not just like, you know, the redheaded stepchild that was... Yeah, it's there, but not really a thing. Now it's becoming a, a first-class citizen in that market, yeah. basically. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, oftentimes we've always had, uh, you know, daytime drinking. We never really had those tap rooms that afforded that, and that affords the family aspect, too. So, you know, I, it's a kind of couple-layered thing on there, too, but I think we never really had uh, tap rooms to come visit them during the day. So where the families go if you want to go out for a beer? I mean, historically, we're a city of German beer gardens. And then we're historically a city of drinking outside with family and friends. So the tap rooms are really enabled as we all age out a little bit and get families and so on. I mean, it's a natural progression in life. So many of the brewery owners have kids right now and you want a place to drink out during the day. And I think it a lot. We've always had the drinking scene on lockdown from, you know, from dusk till dawn. But what about the daylight hours? You can only go to so many bottomless brunches before you want to stab your eye with a Bellini glass. <laughs> and so I think this really allows us to really round it out all together, too. And I mean... More than that, to the point is tourism, that it really, I try to preach this all the time to fellow brewers, that open your doors early in the day. A, New Yorkers work eccentric, odd schedules. Some people work at night, some work in the day. Nobody works nine to five here exactly. I mean, and so what happens there too is open your tap rooms at noon, open them earlier in the day. And you watch a tourist flock there as well. Other have a great case study. They're gangbusters busy now. They're open earlier in the day. And I mean, it's not... It's not like people are playing hooky from Wall Street. It's tourists, beer people that want to come in there, everything all together. Right. I mean, personally, I wish that because my nighttime shift is, uh, I mean, I don't go out to drink at nighttime quite as much as I used to just because 
you know, I got a four-year-old kid and like 6 a.m. comes same time every single day. So it's nice to be able to go out for a beer with friends too. So I think we're finally becoming a well-rounded drinking city and not just about the extremes at night in our clubs and so on too. You can have hit everything else. Definitely. You mentioned other halves. What do you make of this other half explosion? I mean, just people, you know, waiting online hours and hours, that line life, quote unquote, and waiting for other half beer. It's... It's an amazing phenomenon, you know, just to see that happen, to see people camp out overnight in some, in, for some releases to waiting for that beer, you know? Yeah, totally. I think it's a, I think it's a couple different things. They came out in uh, 14, early 14, is one of the city's newest new wave breweries. And so, and then pretty soon they started pinging on IPAs. And so those IPAs really started becoming on the ascent at that moment. Around 14, 15, you saw them really take off in this new direction, softer, juicier, more tropical, less bitter on there too. Be they canned early on as well, yeah. And so they they're, did. The they were can- right on trend without act, without trying, basically. Right on trend, and like see their third part of it all. Instead of paying for advertising, their advertising was themselves. That traveled around the world, everywhere, did collaborations with everybody, and did joint collaborations. Yeah. And so, you know, combined quality beer of being an early trendsetter with sort of like cachet with other breweries too. It's a recipe. But right now, I think one of the reasons they kind of still resonate they treat the people in line really well and also a lot of folks look it's modern tailgating you go play golf on the weekends you want to get away from your family or kids for a couple hours you wait on long you get drunk you go home and yeah. you take a nap and you get back up and that's your life nobody complains or bitches that people go out and like tailgate and they start drinking at 6 a.m on a saturday to be ready for the football game nobody's bats an eye right. about that too but you wait in line you get your stuff together and like you get beer and you're with friends all of a sudden it's sort of like it's evil, it's bad, it's weird, and you know, it's, it is what it is. You spend your time. I mean, as long as it doesn't impact your other things, too. You know, I mean, it's just these lines aren't set up. The infrastructure is not set up there, too. So, you know, you got to have tertiary things like McDonald's being kind for people peeing there. And, right, right. Yeah, and so yeah. on, all that stuff, too. So, you just can't have people waiting in line yeah. at 5, 6 in the morning with the natural uh, beck and call of the bladder. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. always a thing, right? And I right. think I read that they they were actually opening their bathroom up, yeah, more often than not. Like you know, like hey, let's have somebody save your spot. You know, you can use our bathroom. That's great. It's been a long time since I've been there at eight in the morning. I, I, I've never I've never been in yeah. in line, but I've always stopped by like once the line dissipates, just because that's when I wake up. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. perfect. Yeah, just so I mean, for me, I mean, like I always say, there. I mean, there's two things. There's a lot in the world. There's a ton of eggs and a ton of beers. So don't wait for brunch and don't wait for beer. I mean, it's, uh, yep. I mean, you pick it up if you want to, you want to. But I mean, there's a lot of great things out there right now that don't get the credit. I completely agree. And we've spoken about this on the show in the past before. Other half, great beer. But in New York City, you don't need to wait online to get great beer. No, I mean, I don't know. What I want out of my drinking experience is um, I want to I want to relax with friends I haven't seen all week long. Mm-hmm. I want to have a good time. I want to chill out. And you can't do it. You can't always get that in some of these busier tap rooms. I mean, something like Folk Spear, very sunny, airy, welcoming atmosphere. To me, that's great. You relax with some pilsners. There's no no one's elbowing aside. You get double whatever. Yeah. It's great. And so it's um, Strong Rope's a great example, too. Nice and chill and relaxed. Yep. I mean, everybody. some people would say it's too sleepy. I mean, for me, it's kind of what I want. Some yeah. people want that energy and that action. But, I mean, there's something for everybody. Absolutely. Yep. Just going back to the book, yeah, and you've touched on it a little bit, but, but what do you hope the audience really comes away with after reading Homebrew World? <laughs> that I mean, you know, that people around the world 
have to deal with all these barriers to make great beer, no matter what it is. Like I said, either be a small apartment, being like inability to access these ingredients, being at strong laws in countries. I had a hard time finding any brewers in Japan because you can't brew above 1% beer there. And everybody was afraid to talk to me because of the government. Really? Which is nuts. Yeah, and that's so, crazy. But in China, I talked to a dude. He basically has people Mulem hops from around the world. He's got all these drops. I think he's got a... And then he basically sells his beer via a social media app. And so wow. people come to his place, buy his beer, walk away, and he's just like, whatever. In Iceland, some people started a uh, basically a malt importing business because they couldn't get malts in Iceland. So you know what it is? I mean, if you think you can't brew in your apartment, think about these people that really had to go there. People in Mexico City driving to San Antonio to stock up on all the grains for the year. People that are overcoming in the sorry the uh, outback of Australia to brew in hot weather. How do you brew a Burning Man? How do you brew from spontaneous ferments in Alaska and so on? So it's just challenges, and everybody really approaches brewing in the same way that nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to stop me. That I'm going to make great beer, and it's just it's a series of you know, manager profiles and overcoming something for your for your hobby, for your passion, and many times what becomes your life. So it's kind of like vignettes worldwide. Yeah, vignettes worldwide, goals, profiles worldwide, and also, you know, cited with stories about people that started off, you know, Trogues here in Nevada, all these people started off in their uh, apartments, backyards, kitchens, and really combining that with stories about homebrewers and went pro as well, too. Right on. Yeah, I think, like, we don't realize how much I think of the, uh, the third wave of beer right now has really been sort of fueled by the, uh, we have a really great minor league system of brewers now that have access to great uh, education, availability. They can, you can go online, get any recipe you want, go online and answer any question, buy whatever book you want. You look at some of these countries in South America, Brazil, and so on. Some of the people that are really succeeding are people that spoke English. Because they had access to information, access to knowledge, access to ability. You don't speak English. You're behind the eight ball. And so it's weird. You think wow. about something as simple as language and you don't have access to this information. You've tried to run crap through Google Translate. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially ter- with scientific terms and names of malts and, and you know, whatever else. Double dry hop crowds <laughs> does not exist in like Spanish. <laughs> yeah. You just don't really, it doesn't sure. translate in the same way too. Well, not that it translates in English either. But. No, no. Really. <laughs> <laughs> you say that to like 99% of people and they're going to be like, uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, you got you got two bunnies. Yes, double dry hop. Two bunnies inside, raining outside. <laughs> Terrific! What a great day. <laughs> so now, um, you know, when you when you're approaching your writing, especially yeah. especially for books, what's your process kind of like? Like, what's kind of the mindset when you're when you're kind of embarking on the journey of writing these books? Yeah, I think writing a book is all about everybody's different. Everybody's got approaches. For me, it's about creating the architecture first. Identifying your subject matter, identifying your chapter structure, going from there, seeing who your interview subjects are going to be, creating a giant Excel spreadsheet of all that crap, and one by one going through it all and interviewing all the people I want to interview, you know, and then going back, transcribing them, maybe chapter by chapter, and then starting getting it all together. And that way you have, that way you got for me, I've got checks and balances. I've got things I'm able to uh, knock off. I think the hardest part with big projects is looking at it as a big project that you look at as being too massive and you get overwhelmed. If you look at it as a series of small parts you can check off one at a time, it feels manageable. So I'm getting the structure together, identifying the subjects, interviewing them, writing them all together, and then um, 
editing and then editing one more time, sending off, and then it's it's it feels like it takes forever, but you're seeing progress every single day. It's right, very similar right. to software, actually. Yeah, like breaking a big problem down into pieces you can actually deal with and figure out how to approach. You, you have to. You're a proud. You're, you're basically a, a project manager, yep. and you're your own project manager too. And nobody is going to tell you. Nobody's going to keep you on track. Nobody's going to be like call you up, be like, Josh, really, it's time. You know, you have to wake up every day. And I've always been a self-starter, you know, always. Ever since high school, we made zines, like I said. Uh, college, uh, New York City, we made magazines through parties. Don't miss deadlines. It's just... Uh, and I've been freelance since November 01. And there's a reason I've been able to do that for nearly 17 years. And I mean... yeah. You know, a lot of people are good writers, too, but you have to have a certain, um, you got to be a businessman, you got to be a hustler, you got to be like an idea generator, and you have to be very strict about yourself, and also knowing when to take time off, knowing that, hey, it's Friday, knock off for two hours, ride your bike, drink a beer, cake, and lantern, and have a great day, then go back home. Yep. Right, right. So now, uh, with this particular book, what, what would you say the, the most challenging aspect of completing it was, and then on the flip side... What was the most rewarding aspect? I mean, I think the hardest part was, you know, I'm very upfront about this. I'm really not much of a brewer. I think when you when you write about beer for a living, everybody expects you to be a master cicerone, you know, BJCP judge, figure out draft line mechanics, be a great writer, be all these things all together, be a great brewer. But, you know, we've all got strengths and weaknesses, and my strengths are writing, interviewing, telling stories, community building, organizing, event production, and so on. I'm not great at like breaking down a recipe and figuring that out. So we got all these recipes. I mean, I was like, are these going to work? Like, I've got zero idea if these are going to work. So I basically hired the guys from Bitter and Esters, looked them over, make sure they ran through properly, made them all consistent, and made sure that they read right to homebrewers. So the homebrewers that picked them up would not be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, so they, the recipes read great. That was really hard for me to figure it out. And then, you know, it was just like, you know what? I'm not going to do this. You can, it's America, you can pay people money to do shit. <laughs> right, right. And they're happy to do it. You pay them money. Yeah. It's really amazing. You're not good at something. You don't want to mow your lawn, somebody will mow your lawn. You don't want to, you don't want to like format brewing recipes. It's like, pay somebody to do it. I've got no shame in that. But I mean, the most rewarding thing I think was um, just being trusted to tell these stories. These are, I think oftentimes so these brewers are not folks that are looked at as, stars, celebrities, people in their own right, but they've been really been doing stuff in the shadows. I think they're just as crucial to the beer world as anything else altogether. So many of their friends, compatriots, have gone on to brew better beer and do things together and open up breweries. But for reasons of their own, they decided to stay amateur and stay there on the sidelines but not lose their passion, lose any of their like will and heart for what they're doing too. Not everybody can be a professional brewer, just like not sure. every amateur cook can open up a restaurant. But, you know, you want you want the amateur cooks want to hear about professional cooks. But I want to showcase that I think a lot of these amateurs can make beer just good professionals. You just can't buy it at the store. Right. And now I'm curious, so how long did it take you from start to finish to complete this project? Yeah, you know, this book was probably about 18 months from, like, start to end. It's about average for me, I'd say, from, like, ideation to uh, going through, making sure the pictures look good in the book and... Uh, but even when it comes out, now it's like part two, which is selling it. You got to be a salesman. Yeah. You got to well, be you, a hustler. Yeah. You got to sell it all together. And that took me a while to learn. And like standing in front of people and being at events, being like, would you like to buy my book? 
you, know, you got foam fingers now, right? So that's half the battle. I don't. I know. You do have foam fingers. You can convince people, like, I don't want a book. And I'm like, great. You want a foam finger, don't you? And they're like, actually, yeah. I'm like, great. <laughs> Whatever it takes, make a sale. There you go. And it is. I mean, at the event I did that for the book release party, we had, like, some bullet bourbon or something. And I had, which is like the mix of some of the spirited sodas we had at the end for people that were in the homebrew lounge. And two dudes walked up. And they're like, oh, we're... We're just looking what's here. We got to go in like 20 minutes. He's like, hey, guys, guess what? I got these two foam fingers, and they're $5 each. And you know what else is back there? Ten-year-old bullet bourbon. You know, if you go back there, you give me $10 for two foam fingers. You walk out there with two foam fingers. You get two shots of ten-year-old rye or bourbon or whatever. And you get a drink, whatever beers you want that are left on top. And they looked at me like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. And so they gave me ten ten bucks and went back, did some shots, drank some beers. And they're like, thank you. I'm like... Yeah, but you got to be a salesman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you realize that even if they don't buy your book, I mean, the first time, maybe they remember it later on. Maybe remember that crazy dude who convinced them to do shots before work and they got foam fingers. <laughs> <laughs> to you me, get, that's a great deal. It is a great deal, yeah. We you guys 20- also brewed a beer for that, right? The what? You also brewed a beer for that? Yeah, totally. We're trying to think about the idea of what we want to drink. And so uh, we did sort of a uh, fr- apricot-fruited uh, whip beer. Oh, nice. So the whipped beer fermented kind of dry, so we put some like, a- apricot puree in there. We added a cold so it didn't really ferment out. It didn't really add any real extra. It added just enough sweetness to kind of like balance out the dryness of the whipped beer on there, too. And it tasted kind of like the best mimosa ever. Wow. That, that does sound pretty interesting. You know, like a Bellini mimosa kind of thing, but with yeah. that, just something that's kind of like, you get a touch of that like tart wheat from there and like... A, a little bit of fruit, and you just kind of rock and roll with it. So like a little bit like an Oberon with balls? Yeah, you know, 5.6%, easy going, you know, something to take the shine off the day. There you go. Yeah. Very nice, very nice. So now I'm curious, what was your first introduction to craft beer? Oh, God. Definitely not drinking Bush Light in my backyard when I was growing up. <laughs> um, you know, I would say, you know, I'm 39, so I came of age, went to college in 96. By that time, stuff started happening, but really, I think the... Uh, we had this uh, brew pub in Athens, Ohio, which is Ohio University, not Ohio State, which is different. We're the hippie college, not the football college. Our team was terrible. But there's a brew pub called Ohulis down there, and um, they had a thing called Power Hour, where uh, one hour every night of the week, every pint of beer was a dollar. So you're wow. talking like very 90s beers, like brown ales, like raspberry things, like pale ales, like malt forward. But, you know, they were a dollar. So you'd buy four in an hour, and you'd just sort of power check. You can't really power check five pints in an hour, except while you start sipping them, and you're like, oh, it's pretty good Yeah, on there, too. And so we started really getting to understand that. And then from there, we'd go to other bars in town. So Brooklyn Lager was sold there, uh, Bell's Hearted Ale, because I grew up in Ohio. And so you'd be able to try all these really, you know, foundational American craft beers, too. And there were other local brew pubs in Marietta, Ohio, and other stuff that were there as well. So we got introduced, A, to a local beer scene, B, to, like, really great regional craft beers as well. I mean, this was the age when they so-called microbrews. I mean, right, yep. I remember my 21st birthday party we got. Here, it was, like, an, a, a big old porter from Ohulis and just, like, a half barrel of it and just got housed on my front porch <laughs> and doing that. And, then, you know, Ohulis is now Jackie O's, oh, okay. which is incredibly well-known for their stuff. But back then, like, same facility. They've expanded since then. But, I mean, it was, like... You know, that's where we kind of cut our teeth drinking and got to New York in 2000. And then, uh, 
you know, the cool thing about New York City is bodegas sell you beer one at a time. Yeah. Yes, you do. know, and so you could drink soon about a Bigfoot. You could drink Victory Prima, drink Stone IPA. You had like a dollar fifty for an experience. And so, and back then, maybe they were dusty, maybe they were old, but they were different. Yep. I didn't really care quite as much back then. I think there's a certain, there's a certain niceness to going back in time when you didn't care so much about a bottled on date that each beer was just like a promise of a new, of a new flavor, a new experience, a new journey. And so nowadays, I'm of course that asshole that's like, really? It's like a month and a half old, two months old. Am I gonna drink that? Was this refrigerated? But you know, back then everything was just new, novel, fresh, exciting, and so, and it felt that way for a long time. And New York City really had a lot of. Um, we always had great imports because of our proximity and the, the ports and things shipping over first. We also always had a lot of great craft beer from elsewhere, like Bear Republic and so on, yeah. before, a lot, before a lot of other people did, too. Well, I mean, like, I feel like the the beer scene in general used to be more of a just drinking beers, right? Like yeah. what we now call sessioning because we lost that when craft beer became, let me, you know, really elevate this one beer for the night yeah. or for the hour. You know, it's it's kind of funny that it's kind of doubling back to that. You know, some days you just want to go have three Pilsners. Other days you want to have two crazy beers. Yeah. Really appreciate them. Talk about it with your friends. And that's a fun night because you're still going to have enough to enjoy. You're not going to be sober because it's not like we do weak beers here. But. Yeah. You know, I think it's like a maturation of both your palate and your drinking occasion, too. And I mean, still get drunk. It is what it is. I mean, you don't set out to get drunk, but sometimes you're like, whoa. Hey, it so, happens. And you get, go ahead, chop cheese to the bodega, go to bed, right? About now. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you just know better. I think, too, you, what every drinker follows that sort of journey, I think, where they start off, you're attracted to more intense flavors because we're, we're geared to love sweetness. We're geared to, like, understand bitterness. You're big fruit bombs now. You, you're the big juice beers and so on. But, I mean, after a while, you tend to notice more nuance and stuff, too. I mean, it doesn't have to be a sledgehammer to be great. And sometimes these sledgehammers are what they are. They're, like, they're blunt objects that just, like, obliterate everything in their path. Palette records. Yeah. I mean, how many beers were made? Palette wrecker, palette ripper, palette, like enamel, enamel stripper, and so on, you know? <laughs> yeah. They were dares to drink, and I mean, and that was important, I think, too, but I think right now it's really about grow maturing, you know what's going on, and I think Pilsners have a place in time, but even the Vliet, like I'm drinking right now, that's still a pretty assertively hop one, which harks back to kind of how Pilsners used to be originally, even in the Czech Republic, where they're, you know, you go over there to Pils and you go over there to Prague, these beers are going to be much more assertively up. They're not, you, they're dulled by time. It doesn't matter. I mean, even if you throw them in a refrigerated ship, they're not going to arrive here just as fresh and tasting great. So these beers really offer the promise of sort of um, what European beer is, but for American shores, but without time sort of like endlessly sanding it down. Yeah. Right, right. Sort of along those lines, you know, craft beer, obviously it's ever evolving. Where do you see the next evolution of the craft beer scene yeah i mean we're seeing it right now it's got to be local and i mean and that that's that's happening in many different ways too i think the days of the regional brewery being able to expand and go nationwide are over that people are realizing you can't fight the shelf game nationwide what does green flash mean to new york city it meant nothing it meant nothing and so they're gone now from here gone from the east coast i mean that was an overstep and overarching ambition it made sense back then you know you get caught up in this hype that things are going to last forever you know, every, you know, everything, nothing goes up at the same rate. I mean, every roller coaster has got dips and curves and ups and downs. It's not straight to the top every moment. And so you got to be ready for these dips. And so 
I think people are taking much more measured approaches. Uh, the shoots uh, rain back on their Roanoke facility. They're not going to go ahead with the East Coast expansion in the same way. But in the second night, you're seeing local meaning a lot more. So smaller breweries are going to become sort of like linchpins of neighborhoods and part of the fabric that I think you're going to be able to make. You're not going to be able to get like IPO money anymore. You're not going to get Heineken to buy up and make a billion bucks. But you can make, you know, money enough to, to like sustain yourself and be a great presence. I mean, it's, you know, not every restaurant's going to be a Shake Shack and chained out all over the world and available everywhere. But you can be a great local place for people to come to and like hang on there and do that up. The margins work well on there. But I mean, for bigger breweries, what they're seeing is they need to be local and have as many local presences as possible. Be it uh, sorry, um, Victory in Southern Tier opening up in like Charlotte. They're opening Pittsburgh. up, like a, yeah, Pittsburgh and so on. Um, other people, Stone is going to open up a place in China. Goose Island's opening up places around the world. Yeah. They're giving local faces far from the place. So they're creating a sense of locality far from where they are. Right. And modern times, look at them up and down the West Coast right now. Anaheim, uh, San Diego, Portland, Oregon, L.A. You know, that's forward, I mean. And then augmenting that with drips and drops. You know, they can ship a pallet of beer out here every... Uh, every three months and make an impression and then you know they're not gonna but they don't have to worry about having a rep on the ground here at all times well that's like mckellar too right i mean they were gypsy brewing in europe and still desired big time in america but now they have san diego and new york putting local stuff in the market yeah yeah too i mean last year the uh mets were pouring or serving beer brewed for the stadium in san diego which is silly yeah it's like asinine i mean what yeah, yeah. It is what it is. So, yeah, they're making it feel as local as possible. And that's why Gypsy Brewers, like uh, Evil Twin, are setting down roots in New York City. Stillwater, um, Grimm, you know, yep. they're all putting a local face in their thing. And that's the only way to really control your, control everything a bit and allowing yourself to make whatever beer you want yeah. without constraints. Because, you know, not every contract or secondary facility is going to be like, sure, go ahead, throw all this, like, funky, wild shit in here and like risk contagion for my things ruin my system it'll be fun (laughs) ruin my system and then having to get a canner in there to make it all happen i mean it just doesn't work like that right on right on so yeah i think that's it like you know we're gonna see the other thing too as people fight for the 15 packs and 18 packs we're gonna see the high end you know with um golden road and someone incredibly fighting that spear yeah and so uh independent or you know craft or whatever whatever we're gonna call them these days the upside down bottle. <laughs> yeah. So they, they had an advantage of really innovating with that package format. But I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a challenge going forward, too. And I think you're seeing them play in other sectors with Night Ship with the light lager and so on. Um, yeah. Lakefront Easy Teasy with 99 calorie beer. Kona with 99 calorie beer. You know, Omission with a 99 calorie gluten free beer. You know, we're fighting, fighting on like the Michelob Ultra Turf. Is that going to last? I don't know. I mean, people have to believe in these things. They have to be enough flavor to allow you to unlock that and understand that. I mean, people, I mean, not to keep on bringing back burgers, but people, Shake Shack and McDonald's offer burgers, but you know, you know, the cheap burgers last for a long time. People are willing to pay a couple bucks more for something good. It's yeah. still cheaper than a steakhouse burger, but it's like, you know. Yeah, it's, we, that, it's that middle grade. I mean, you know, you look at Founders All Day and Stone's Go To and a lot of the like easier going beers that are bringing people into the fold but also not really like unapproachably different than what yeah. they're already used to you know and I, I feel like a lot of the bigger breweries are doing that because they have to do it on a larger scale yeah whereas the local breweries obviously that's the point right yeah. walk into my brewery find something you like we'll have one 
let's do it and have a good time. Yeah. You know, these are, I mean, that's going to be challenging times on the way forward right now. But I mean, I'm really, I don't believe in the bubble. I believe overexpansion is going to cause some contraction in the bigger breweries too. Smaller breweries are still growing, can keep up with the demand. I mean, we want, we want tangible experiences in a very disconnected world right now. We want things we can feel. We want things to connect to. I mean, we don't make as many things as America as we used to. Beer is one thing we make, and we make well. I mean, breweries are bringing back not just downtowns, but rural areas across the country, too. You know, going into old dairy farms, going into old farms altogether. That we're seeing revitalization and not seeing things just bulldoze aside right now. And I think... Um, that breweries are going to become part of our life again. I don't. Yeah. I don't see it. Things will close. Things will change. Styles will go out of fashion. I don't think hazy IPAs are going to be forever. Nothing is. I mean, nothing's eternal. Nothing's right. eternal in life. And I mean, so everything. Everything's going to change, and we just got to be happy with that and accept the next steps that are going to be there too. It's always going to be good. It's always going to be. Always going to be something great. If there's not, we'd all be out of a job, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I look at Germany, right? Like. In some cases, it's because it's literally the only brewery in 100 miles. Yeah. And in other cases, it's because there are three great ones and you have the one you like. So the, the local market will always sustain people that enjoy going out and having a good time. And especially, like you said, the family thing is it, we're definitely becoming a mature market that's not just partying, right? It's, it's just a part of the culture. Yeah, too. And I still think there's a bit of like pushback on there as well. A lot of people can't understand. There's all, I mean, it feels like every month there's like an article promoting it and an article against it and on and on and on. The enders push and pull. Should kids be all in these environments? I'm like, should kids belong in restaurants? I would, I would wager it's harder to have a kid in a restaurant than a kid in a tap room. You know, having a kid that can run around and play in this space and the smart brewery owners realize that, you know, family's going to come in at noon at one o'clock on a Saturday. You know, KCBC, they're telling me they make more than 50% of their Saturday sales before 5 p.m. And they're open till late at night. You know, that's people in there. And if you want to complain about people being in there with their kids, there are good parents and there are bad parents and there are good drunks and there are bad drunks. And sure. so there's good. Yeah, I mean, many of the drunks are probably worse than the kids at sometimes, right? Yeah, so. I know. <laughs> the kid's smarter than some people that get drunk at that age. I mean, everybody goes back to being four years of age when you're that drunk. But I mean, it's just a, it's also, it's one in the afternoon. Who's got the real problem if you're drinking in one in the afternoon too? You know, I've been up since 6 a.m. Cut me a break. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. We, we were at Fifth Hammer a couple of weeks ago, and there was a dad. He, he had a, a baby. Couldn't have been more than, than seven, eight months old, holding wow. a baby, having a pint. Table over. There, were, there was a couple. They had their dog there. And it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a place people can go and, and, you know, just decompress, hang out, have a few beers, have a good time. Yeah, you subtract whiskey from the occasion, add sunlight, and it's amazing what it can do to a place. That, you know, there's none of these, I mean, there's nothing, fights are few and far between at beer-only places. I mean, there's really a point where you're just like, wow, I'm tired, I'm full, I should really, <laughs> yeah. I should really go home, I can't drink anymore. Right. You know, or I'm a little drunk, you know, the whiskey and things like that, and like vodka, be whatever, I it mean. Gets you a little more hyped. It gets you, but you know, I think you're primed. It's not, I, there's, I think studies have shown that nothing really hypes you up anymore. It just primes you more to that, too, that if you say you're going out to a wild night with tequila, you feel it's like that you feel that tequila is going to get you going, and so you act more excited. And you're excited to do tequila shots. You got hyped up for it all. I mean, if you got hyped for like a pilsner or like a blue moon, like man, this blue moon is going to be this. It's going to make it happen tonight. We're going to get rocked on blue moons, but it's it's all about your expectations and what your expectations, what alcohol is going to bring you. And I think with like spirits, things hit. You do more, and they hit fast. They hit. It's a delayed moment where you know. 
the alcohol with the beer slowly works away in your bloodstream there too. You know, with like a shot, it's not gonna hit you right away, but like five, ten minutes later you're just gonna be like, Whoa, yeah. what was a good idea is all of a sudden a bad idea and you yeah. just you know There's I a think, psychology to drinking. Yeah. Say, I think the only place I've seen beer at that level was the Aussies in the morning in Oktoberfest. Because yes. everybody else at Oktoberfest, they're out with their kids having a nice afternoon or they're knocking off after work. But uh-huh. the Aussies show up at soon as they open and they're like, I will drink as many liters as I possibly physically can. Yeah. And that is where you see literally the same mindset you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, isn't there a term for that? They're like beer schlecken, like beer zombies at the Oktoberfest <laughs> where, you know, you're at a certain point. Yeah. But, you know, you're hyped up. You're, you're in that mindset. You're in that zone. I don't think you go to a tap room at noon on a Saturday with like, you know what? Today's going to be the day that we just like forget it all, Bob. We're just going to keep it going and not stop till we drop. Yeah. Sure. So, no, but yeah, but I think sunlight's got a limiting factor on just what, you know, when you drink during the light of day, it just changes your mindset and your approach to it all together. Like how you, what you think is going to happen. Agree. Agree. Now, are, are there current breweries that are really impressing you at the moment? Oh my god, it's really hard to think. It's a loaded question, I know. I mean, nationally, locally, uh, a couple of examples of both. Uh, I think Folkspear, locally, I think Folkspear is hitting on all cylinders right now that, you know, doing uh, lagers, fruit Berliners, nice IPAs alike, and kind of offering a. Sometimes I think with our IPA craze right now, people tend to forget to have a well rounded portfolio. And some of those things don't really fall by the way. They fall by the wayside. I like a good double IPA like everybody else. But, you know, do I want four of them? Probably not. So I see breweries like uh, them, uh, KCBC, um, you know, Fifth Hammer as well as really offering a lot of things. They're not being everything to everybody. They have their own distinct viewpoints, but they're not just kind of stuck in one thing altogether right now, too. I think nationally, I was really I was back in Ohio a few weeks ago. I really have what Seven Sons doing. I think they're killing it right now. It's a form of chef call on vent. Uh, they do sours really well. They do, you know, IPAs cleanly. Um, and also in Ohio, Columbus Beer Company. You know, you want to talk about really amazing IPAs that are just like, they are on point. They are there. They have no real haze to them altogether. But they just explode with flavor. And they're the kind of things like Ed Creeper. 10% IPA, 12-ounce bottles, but it drank like 5%. So easy, cloak the alcohol burns so well and so nicely all together. And, you know, the national ones, I always go... I mean, there's always a handful I always go back to no matter what. I still think Firestone Walker, Allagash, and Sierra Nevada can do no wrong. And not all of them are one... I mean, like Sierra Nevada tends to be forgotten sometimes, I think, but they can do no wrong, I think. It's just there. And it's good to go back to things from the classics sometimes as yeah. well, too. They're, they're truly staples. They are staples, and I think it's good to understand what a staple beer is in your life. Some you can trust. I mean, if I'm in the middle of nowhere going camping at a shop off the beaten path, they have like a 12-pack of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I'll buy that every single time. So if the dissolved oxygen is going to be super low. Freshness is going to be on point. It's all going to be there as well. And then um, let's see if there's other breweries I loved in Ohio when I was back. I'd say Little Fish Brewing in Athens is doing great mix for men's farmhouse-style beers better than a lot. You know, don't get all the credit because they're a tiny farmhouse brewery in Ohio. But, you know, it's great to try great things when you go back home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very nice. And now, when when you're not drinking craft beer, what are some of the things you prefer to drink? Seltzer. <laughs> <laughs> Seltzer. Uh, you know, what else I drink? You know, 
Seltzer or Nippa Nippa whiskey, preferably a very dry rye. I would say something like that would be ones are sort of like go-tos and standards for me. But beyond that, not really much wine at all. I don't know. It's not that I'm against it. It's just you just, I'm surrounded by beer. My house filled with beer. It's hard to justify going out and buying endless bottles of wine to fill it up with that too. Right. But that or, you know, a good uh, aperitif, something like that as well too. Something I tend to go for as well. Right on, right on. Yeah, but you know, that and coffee. You know, water, beer, coffee, water, beer, coffee. That's seltzer it. is kind of the... Uh, but then there's just so much... There's such a broad scope of beers out there right now. So it's not just drinking beer. I mean, am I in a porter mood? Do I want to drink a double IPA? Do I want to drink a, a 3% uh, Berliner Weiss? Do I want to drink a Radler? I mean, a lot of these beers fill the occasions that, you know, things that I would have had to reach outside the category years ago for. Now they exist within this category, too. Right yeah. Radler is, like, basically a mixed, like, a mixed fruit beverage, a mixed fruit drink. Yeah. A mixed fruit cocktail, in yeah. a sense, too. You know, a lot of wild beers can stand in for the complexity of yep. wine. Oh, yeah. There. Um, so, you know, I just, you know, the Goza could be your Gatorade. It's just, uh, <laughs> you got those electrolytes, got them kicking on there, too. And I think uh, all these things just really, they fill a place for it all. That's not just that beer is so diverse. that the, And when I hear people tell me, like, I don't like beer, I'm like, well, that's like saying I don't like air. You know, yeah. or I don't like food. There's like, you know, different kinds of things out there, too. If you don't like breathing smog, I get it. But what about like mountain air? What about, you know, what about this? Now? You don't Ocean like air with the salty tinge. Salty and... stuff. And so I think there's lots of things you can say and try. And, you know, out there. I think it's just about people are so stuck in this mindset of like domestic production lager really colors people's opinions of what beer can be. And, you know, we're still... Not even twenty percent of the market drinks what we consider craft or whatever, and and they're I mean, gobbling up what's left of the larger sides whenever they can. Yeah, and I mean, look, it's still like so many people. Beer is kind of losing ground a bit to uh, spirits and uh, spirits and wine. People are not as wedded to one category or as one thing. I mean, people are so omnivorous right now with their consumption. They're they're seeking out flavor. They're not just seeking out um, one thing. They want to try new things all the time. Yeah. Which makes it tough for brands that could coast on, or breweries that could coast on one brand until they die. You know, fat tire for life. No, actually not. <laughs> you know, it's not always going to work out like that. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, I just think it's just um, the sand ships so quickly that you have to be nimble and agile. And you have to respond much faster than you used to. Absolutely. And to your point, I believe there's a, there's a beer for everyone out there. Yeah. 100%. There's a beer for everyone out there, you know. You just got to find, ask them what they like, you know, talk to people in the language. Ask them, you like food, right? Like, what do you like eating? Do you like coffee? Do you like chocolatey flavors? Do you like berries, like raspberries? Do you like things that are really crisp? Do you like things that are like, like crackers? What do you like? And if you relate things in a food concept or ways that they can find out or flavors they really enjoy, you know, I think that could go along there. Like, what do, you, what, what do you like drinking on the beach? Oh, you like drinking Corona. Well, you know, why don't you try this really great Mexican lager from this local brewery down the road? It's kind of like what you love. And what you love about it, it's got a bit of corn in there, which has a bit of sweetness. And this yeast strain is crisp in there, too. And it's, like, refreshing. But it's not so watery to be as inoffensive. Right on. Right on. I have a couple more questions. But, Perry, I know you had a couple of questions you wanted to get into. Uh, I mean, I, I was just going to ask you, because it seems like it's been the hot topic for the last couple of weeks with the whole Stone versus Keystone little battle going on. Yeah. Um, and we, I mean, we brought that up vaguely a little bit ago, but uh, it's kind of interesting because it's 
obviously a, a very social media market play, but it's also a very well established like they're fighting they're fighting for the right reasons but doing it the wrong way it almost seems like. You know, if you want to fight if you want to fight a marketing, if you want to fight a big company and have a public law, if you want to make a lawsuit public, be prepared to win it and have it be airtight. That's yeah. all I got to say. Like, you know, legislation and litigation is nothing, no laughing matter. You know, lawyers are paid a shit ton of money to basically tell you to fuck off. Yeah. Literally. And to, like, deflate your entire opinions on there, too. So, I mean, I get it, but it's just stones too big, I think, to be fighting us versus them battles right now. You're opening up a goddamn brew pub at a place in China. You open up something in Berlin. Yep. You've got something in Virginia. You're not the little man anymore, too. You're the little man in the scope of them versus a Goliath. But, I mean, to a local brewery, they're the, you're, they're the Goliath now. Yeah, yeah. They're the Goliath. And so, you know, I don't know. I just think it's – that's a tactic I think that resonated five, ten years ago. But I just would think, like, consumers are much savvier now. I'd hope they're going to be. I get what they're saying, but it's a stunt. And, like, why not let the beer stand on stand on so marriage? Nobody is going to – even if you call it Stone as a nickname, nobody's going to misinterpret this together. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's how I feel. I mean, like, again, just – don't bring a lawsuit against a bigger company if, unless your lawsuit is sort of perfect because they can fight it harder, longer, and have more money to throw at it than you do. Yeah. So, random question, but when you're not doing things in the beer scene, what, what are the, some of the things you like to do outside of it? Stare at the wall, not moving, <laughs> quietly now. Uh, I like biking around. Um, it's about, like, New York City, I'm an avid, I, I like biking around, going to places, uh, I used to be a food writer as well, or that was a bigger part of my writing diet. So I would go around to Flushing, Sunset Park, trying to find crazy handful of noodles and dumplings. And so that was a job, and now it's a, sort of a hobby and a passion. So I'll get on my bike. I'll bike out to Sunset Park, go to like 48th Street, go eat the dumplings there, go to the food court on 64th and get some like dry pot, Szechuan, vegetables, and then go back home or get a banh mi at Bajuyan on 43rd and 8th. I love doing that. Uh, we're big beachgoers in the summertime. I'm a terrible surfer with a great boogie boarder. So we go down the Rockaways and hang out down there. And then, um, yeah, I think New York City is nothing but endless adventures. And so we just try to experience whatever we can. Be it riding the Roosevelt Island tram, being at, uh, you know, going to crazy parks, taking my daughter wherever we want to go. Just kind of charting your own course for the day and making it all happen on there. I mean, when people say that, there's no, there's no such thing as the phrase, I'm bored in New York City. There's always something new to do. I mean, today I picked my kid up from school. We went to the Botanic Garden to go, uh, you know, check out the flowers and the cherry trees. And we stopped by the park next to it and picked all the wild growing flowers. So she got flowers for Mother's Day. And I mean, you know, it's, it's just fun. It's life. It's what you do. Yeah. And, you know, it's a city. And I think beer is part of my life. But I think it's sometimes people forget that I do have a downtime, too. And, you know. When you see me on the street, you can be like, how are you doing? What are you eating lately? And not just like launching a beer right away. I think, too, that there were a lot of beer people are very well-rounded. And you've got a lot of interests as well, too. And it's not just beer. And so it's remembering that we're more than just an IBU. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And, you know, you're right. If you're bored in New York City, you're not doing it right. Yeah, there's no sense of being bored here. No, I no. mean, you can do whatever you dream of here. Literally, you think of it, you can go do it. City of dreams. So now, do you have any upcoming events you want to talk about, promote? Good heavens, great question. I should probably access my brain right now. Um, 
Next Tuesday, I'll be in Nashville at the Craft Brewers Conference doing a book signing at Bootleg Biology, which is a great yeast-herding bank down there. They do crazy stuff. So I'll be doing a book signing there on Tuesday the 1st at 6 p.m. On May 6th, right here at Threes, we're running the next Can Jam. Yep. I'll be probably bringing some foam fingers. And the Can Jam was actually, we created that event for my uh, last book, Complete IPA, and it was such a success that we kept on doing it again and again and again. And then on May 12th, we'll be doing a uh, homebrew to Pro Tour with our friend uh, Jason Saylor at Strong Rope and Sven from Sven Ale. And so we're going to their home, drinking a beer inside their house for that. Nice. And so that's going to be kind of tight. And that's on uh, Saturday, May 12th. And you can find out about all these events on my website, joshuambernstein.com. Excellent. And leading into that, if people want to purchase your book, where can they go and do that? Yes, they can buy it on the internet anywhere or bookstores. Or if you want a copy signed by me and sent to me in a banana mailer with a koozie and a cute little button, I can make that happen too. I'll even go to the post office and I can write what curse word I'm thinking as I'm standing in the line on the back of it so you too can experience the pain of Brooklyn's Postal Service. I know we, we've... Um We've covered a lot of topics, talked about a lot of different things. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you'd like to bring up? Yeah, I think the last thing I just want to underscore is I think right now in New York City, we're, it's not a golden age of beer here. We're getting there. It's better and better every day. But I mean, I think when you come to New York City, make beer part of your itinerary, make it part of your tour, pick out what you want to do, and you can have a great walking experience. I mean, cities like San Diego are great. You know, Portland, Oregon's great. But I mean, New York City's got... What it offers in a way is just this density and walkability that you don't have to get in a car, don't have to order an Uber. You can walk, to other, you go to other half, then on a train, you walk to Folkspear, then you walk to Strong Rope, then you walk to Threes, and then you walk over to Mission Dolores, and then you go from there, and like on and on. You go to Queens, you start a transmitter, then you go to Rockaway Brewing, and you go to like Fifth Hammer and Big Alice, LIC Beer Project, the uh, soon to open uh, iconic uh, tap room out there, too. And I mean, all on foot, no cars required. And that just allows you to kind of have fun. And it really, I think um, you need to, like, I think, walk the streets of New York City to get a feel of it too. Whizzing by on a bus in a cab while you're on your phone doesn't show you anything, but walking around really gives you the tenor, the scope, the rhythm of what the city life's all about. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. And I think on that note, I think we've covered it all. Again, thank you so much for yeah. hopping on the show. Thanks for having me. No, it's been a great time. Absolutely. It's a good time. And yeah, be on the lookout. Get that book if you have not done it yet. Yeah, drink local, drink fresh, repeat, no matter where you are in the world. And I'm going to get another beer right now and then bike home. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. Cheers. Right.